you, worship team. Thank you. Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Mason Stewart. I am very grateful to now be serving as the discipleship pastor. When you experience suffering, does it ever cause you to question whether God might have abandoned you? Whether God might have left you out here in this wilderness? Does it question, do you question whether he might be apathetic towards you? Or maybe sometimes when you mess up, maybe it's you that you question. Is God just done with me? Am I the sort of person that he's interested in saving? Mark has good news for us in our wilderness. I want to give you a warning at the outset. We're in the crucifixion passage today, Mark 15, 21 through 39. There will be some explicit content. We're going to talk about first century execution. And there will also be some heavy emotional content. So if you're sensitive, particularly sensitive to those things, I just want to warn you in case you don't want to be exposed to this. So before we read this passage, let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that even in our wilderness, that you encamped among us and that we are encamped around you this morning. We know that you're pleased with our singing of your praises. And we come to you weary, some of us broken, some of us needing encouragement to continue on. We pray that you would speak to us, proclaim your good news to us about what you're doing, even though it looks very different to us sometimes. Give us revelation today about what you are doing, the bigger picture. We want to hear your voice. Holy Spirit, come in the name of Jesus. Refresh us in this wilderness. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, here is Mark 15, 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so, you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, 
the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The word of God. Now, if anything is a scene of spiritual wilderness, it's this. The crucifixion of Jesus. The execution of God. Crucifixion was a horrible practice. It was a form of execution used by the Roman Empire in the first century. Roman citizens weren't subject to it. This was reserved for the lowest of the low, for slaves, foreigners, people that didn't have rights in that day. And what would happen is they would often beat you, abuse you. You would be forced to carry a part of the cross out to the crucifixion site. And the crucifixion site would be a very public place, often at the intersection of two big roads on a hill, so as many people as possible would see you. You would be stripped of your clothes. This was a way to shame the condemned person. So they would be crucified naked. They would be hung up on the cross. And they would hang there for hours and hours in this public site. And people that would go by would just mock them and shame them. Your bodily functions would still be functioning. So this could be very smelly. This is just a horrible, gross thing. And sometimes, even after a few days, when you became too weak to pull yourself up anymore, and you lost your strength, then you wouldn't be able to breathe anymore. And you would slowly asphyxiate. You would suffocate. It was a horrendous way to kill somebody. This is what happens to Jesus. And Mark... He spends a lot of time showing us that almost everyone turned against Jesus in this moment of suffering. 
Jesus suffered basically alone. He tells us earlier that all of his disciples, the 12 men that he really invested in over this past couple of years, they all abandoned him. And he alludes to that here when he says that a man named Simon was forced to pick up and carry the cross. Notice it's not Simon Peter. It's not his right-hand man because he's long gone. And then he tells us about how Jesus was crucified in between two rebels. There was one on his right and there was one on his left. And I don't know if you remember when the interns preached and they talked about how Jesus, two of his other inner three disciples, James and John, Zach Kokenzie talked about how they asked Jesus if they could sit on his right and his left. But they're not here because they're long gone too. So Jesus has been abandoned by his closest friends. The Roman officials don't care at all about him. The charge against him, the king of the Jews, is really a joke to them that they could execute somebody who would claim to be the king of this minority group on the edge of the Roman Empire. And it's also a way of shaming the Jews that they could execute their king. So this is all just a joke. The public now, we see that those who are passing by are heaping insults on Jesus. The religious leaders, Jesus' own clergy, the chief priests, the scribes, they're mocking him. And even the people who were condemned alongside Jesus, they're using whatever strength they have left to heap insults on him. This is the epitome of human brokenness. The crucifixion reveals how broken we can be as humans. And keep in mind, this Jesus is the embodiment of God. This is what it can look like when God shows up in a tangible way and when human beings get threatened by his presence, then they actually get the chance here to unleash their hatred. Isn't it so remarkable that the symbol of the cross, the epitome of human brokenness, that it has become so precious to us Christians? It's because God, in his amazing wisdom and power, has transformed the worst event in history into perhaps the most beautiful event in history. When we meditate on Jesus on the cross, it's like it's such a profound event. It's like a diamond with many different facets. There are many, there are many different ways of looking at what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So I want to spend just a couple of moments of reflecting from another angle of Jesus on the cross. Here are four different facets that come up in the Gospel of Mark about what is happening here from God's perspective. First is, Jesus is the Passover lamb. We talked about how God's people were in Egypt, they were enslaved, and they celebrated something called Passover. 
where God told them to sacrifice this lamb, to put its blood over the door, which would spare God's people from judgment. And the Egyptians themselves, they faced severe judgment, which enabled God's people to be delivered out of Egypt into the wilderness, into freedom. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the true Passover lamb. But he's not just delivering God's people from the Romans, these people from those people. Jesus is doing a far more foundational deliverance here. Jesus is delivering humanity, all of us, these people and these people, from the ultimate enemy, Satan. And he's delivering us from the power of Satan, which is sin in our life, and the result of sin, which is our lives ending in death. Jesus is the Passover lamb that delivers us into a relationship with God, to live life as God intended, to enjoy his blessing, and to have life everlasting. Second, Jesus is the true temple. At this time, in Jerusalem, there was a temple. And in the back room of that temple was the place where God dwelt in his fullness. This was a gift of grace that although God's people were very broken, although this was a place of spiritual wilderness, God wanted to dwell with his people. But there was a heavy curtain which separated God from the sinful world because he was holy. God's people could approach and come near, but only so much. And there had to be sacrifices that took place. This was the overlap between heaven and earth, where God dwells. Now Jesus, as we read the Gospel of Mark, he is the true temple. Jesus, in his body, is the overlap of heaven and earth. Jesus' body is where, the place where God dwells in his fullness. And Jesus is like a mobile temple. He can walk around, and he is encountering people. He's forgiving sins. He's healing people. These were things that would happen at the temple, but now they're happening wherever Jesus goes. He's the true temple, and when he dies on the cross, it says that that curtain that separated God and sinful humanity was torn, and Jesus breathes out. In the Greek, the word breathe and the word spirit are the same word. So we get this image of Jesus breathing out the spirit, this curtain being torn. And what we're being told is that humanity now has access to the fullness of God's presence because what Jesus did on the cross. And now the Holy Spirit can even dwell within us. And because we have access to God's presence, we have access to wholeness. Third, Jesus is the anti-Adam. We talked about a couple of weeks ago how in the garden, Jesus does the opposite of what Adam does when he says, not my will, but yours be done. If you think about the first Adam, he was a representative of humanity, and he had the gift of life, and he was deceived by the snake, and he disobeyed God, and so he was given over to death. 
And because of his actions, that spread to the rest of us. Brokenness was unleashed, and we've all confirmed it by our own actions. But now we have the new Adam, the anti-Adam. He's a new representative of humanity, and he was given over to death, but he obeyed, and so he crushed the snake because he didn't give in to the snake. He obeyed God, and so he received the gift of life in the resurrection. And just as we received brokenness from the first Adam, now we can receive wholeness from the anti-Adam through the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives to us. Last one, Jesus is the servant Christ. Now, this is a particularly cool one in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark addresses this big issue to a first century person. They would wonder, how could Jesus be this royal figure, like it was claimed of him, if at the end of his life, he was executed on a cross in a very shameful death. Well, the Gospel of Mark proclaims that he is a great deliverer. He is a king, but he delivers in a different sort of way than you would expect. Because he is also this person, the suffering servant, who, although he lives in perfect obedience, he lives for God, and he endures suffering, he endures the condemnation, the consequences that we deserve in order to achieve atonement so that we could be forgiven, that we could be reconciled to God. And so this Christ, he enables humanity's salvation by means of his suffering. That's the way that he delivers. It wasn't like anything that anybody expected. And he's a different sort of king because he reigns in service. He doesn't reign from the top down, dominating. He reigns from the bottom up, holding us up. He's a servant. We've seen Jesus talking about following him on the way to wholeness. But here, as we reach the end of the Gospel of Mark, it becomes clear that Jesus himself is the way to wholeness. That on the cross, as we look at these four things, we realize this is the place where he actually becomes our way to wholeness. Something profound, something cosmos changing occurs here on the cross. It is so incredible that at the epitome of human brokenness, that this is the moment in which Jesus becomes the way to wholeness, isn't it? And just as the crucifixion, it reveals the epitome of human brokenness, when we think about what Jesus has done for us, when we think about his posture on the cross, this also reveals the epitome of God's love for broken humans. Just think about it. Look at Jesus on the cross. He's not running away from our brokenness. He's not turning his face. He's actually fully present in the middle of our brokenness. He shows up in the room when we need him. Look at Jesus. 
he's undeterred by our hatred of him. We can spew insults on him. We can abuse him. But he is still moving toward us in love. Jesus is not angry. He's not condemning people. He's actually being very empathetic here. Fully identifying with us in our brokenness. Even taking it upon himself. The consequences, the condemnation that we deserve. He's empathetic. And he's compassionate. He's doing all of this for our benefit. This is Jesus in the crucifixion. Theologian Steve Siemens, he observes how appropriate it is that in the crucifixion, the arms of God are open, ready to embrace broken humanity. If only we would embrace him back. This is the love that God is calling us to proclaim to the broken. This is the love that we're called to proclaim in our spiritual wilderness. But sometimes, I think we need to acknowledge that the hardest person to reach sometimes with this love is ourselves. Sometimes it's hard to accept this. When we are feeling the weight of the wilderness, when we are overwhelmed by our own brokenness, or when we are experiencing severe suffering, it can be very hard to trust that God does love us. When we're feeling that way, though, the crucifixion has a different word to speak to us. I hope that you are beginning to hear that even in the middle of your brokenness, God loves you. He loves you in your wilderness. The crucifixion is proof that God loves you when you're at your guiltiest. If you have screwed up pretty bad, I'm guessing that you haven't literally murdered God. Okay? If, if he was... If he had this posture for these people, what's his posture for you when you're at your worst? Trusting in God lo God's love, though, it can be easier when we're feeling guilty than when we're suffering sometimes. When we're feeling guilty, it's perhaps because we feel like we've wronged God. And so if he says he loves us, we could be like, okay, that's fine. That's great. But when we're suffering sometimes, we might feel like God has wronged us. Have you ever cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you feel like God has wronged you, that can be a more difficult obstacle. Why does God allow us to go through the suffering that we go through? It's possible to, not very helpful sometimes, but it's possible to give a philosophical justification for why God allows suffering. It goes like this. If you assume that suffering is a consequence of sin, that sin unleashes 
suffering, then here's the argument. That human freedom is an essential ingredient in love. So if you want to have love, you have to have the ability for humans to choose to go this way or for humans to choose to go that way. Otherwise, we're going to be robots. So if you want to have real love, that means that sin is an inherent risk. That's the argument. Rational arguments like that, they can be compelling to our intellect, but they're not very helpful when we, for example, have just lost a loved one. But when we're in our suffering, I believe it is still possible to trust God, to trust his heart. Because we can see him in the crucifixion present in our sufferings. We can even see him bearing our sufferings on the cross. Becoming our way through this mess. And so the crucifixion, it shows us that there's no easy solution to suffering. This is something Steve Siemens also points out. There's no simple solution even for God. This is what it requires. And the crucifixion is proof that God does love us in the middle of our suffering. Have you experienced the suffering of shame or abuse? Jesus was stripped and while he was tortured in public. He endured extreme physical and verbal abuse. Have you experienced the suffering of abandonment by someone you trusted or even betrayal? Jesus was abandoned by all of his closest friends, and he was betrayed by one of them. Have you experienced the pain of injustice or discrimination that someone hasn't treated you like you're worth anything because of perhaps the way you look? God became a joke to the Roman soldiers. He was just some Jew from Nazareth to them. His life was worthless to them, even though he was God. Have you been hurt by the church, even by pastors? God was literally murdered by his clergy. Have you experienced the death of a loved one? And I know some of you have in this room in the past year or two. The father in this mess lost his son, and the son lost his father. Jesus knows how we feel. He's experienced the full gamut of human suffering. He entered into it. He loves us. And his love for us, though, it's not without power. It's not mere sentiment. Because he was doing something through this. He was becoming the way through it. Our way to wholeness. Out of this wilderness. Jesus has opened up a way of wholeness for you. And he does it right in the middle of your wilderness. He's devoted to your wholeness. 
He became the way to wholeness at the very epitome of human brokenness. That's when he did it. And we didn't do anything to qualify for this offer of wholeness, so we can't mess it up. That's the good news. It's always available to us. Jesus became the Passover lamb, the true temple, the anti-Adam, the servant Christ, in order to open the way of wholeness for you. You can have a good relationship with God because of what he did, which enables you to experience the blessing of life as God intends it to the degree that's possible on this broken earth. And then to experience the complete blessing of life as God intended it in the next age. Those experiences in your life, the experiences that are really the worst experiences of your life, God can transform them into something beautiful. He can even do that, just like he did in his own life through the crucifixion. And there are many people that could testify to that. The worst thing that they experienced has been transformed into something that's now beautiful because God has healed it. The thing that drives this all home for me is the centurion. In that moment when the curtain is torn and when Jesus breathes out the Spirit, there's this Gentile, not only that, but a soldier. He's pretty much the enemy of God's people. Not only that, but he's overseeing the murder of God. In that moment, he has a revelation. And it all clicks for him about who Jesus really is. And he cries out, truly this man was the son of God. He sees it. Surely it had to be a revelation of the Holy Spirit. And as I was reading that and reflecting on that, I realized that's my experience too. That I, although I grew up in a Christian home with wonderful parents, it had not clicked for me. God was basically not real for me until I went to this youth retreat when I was 12. And the crucifixion, God on the cross was presented to me and explained to me. And they had pictures that were very bloody and horrific. And one of them is still burned in my mind where it looks like Jesus was looking right at me. And I was overcome by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it clicked for me in that moment that I realized that he is who he says he is and that he was bearing that suffering for me. I felt a lot of guilt about the things that I had done even as a preteen. And I realized that he did that for me, that he loved me. And ever since then, my life has been changed. Truly, God opened up a relationship with me where sometimes I've tried to stay, stray away, but he has kept calling me back and he has kept leading me. It's been over two decades now and he's leading me in the paths of life where I can experience life as he intended it, where I can experience the blessing that he wants for me. 
And he's been protecting me from paths that lead to brokenness and to death. And I'm sure that many of you in this room could stand up here and share a much more compelling testimony. But I just want to add my voice at the end of this scripture to say this is very real. This is all very real. This is not just ideas. God truly did open up the way of wholeness for us where we can have a relationship with him, where we can be led by him and experience the blessing that he wants for us. At the culmination of our worship with Jesus this morning, he invites us to encounter him at his table. We have, if the, those who are serving communion would come up, we have individually packaged a wafer and a cup in the back to this side of the sound booth, if you'd like that. We also have gluten-free to this side of the sound booth. I'd like to invite us to all stand as we prepare to respond. In this moment, let's trust in the love of Jesus. I know that there's a lot of hard things that we're all experiencing. Some of us are racked with guilt. Others of us are barely hanging on because of the suffering we're experiencing. But I want to invite you, let's look at him on the cross and trust in his love. Think about what has gotten between you and God. If there are some sins that you need to confess, I invite you to bring those with you when you come up to receive the cup and the bread. Or if there are some sufferings that are just weighing you down, that are destroying your quality of life, bring those when you come up to receive the cup and the bread. Let us trust in his love and come to him. It's almost like an exchange. Bring those with you, and as you hold out your hands, give them to Jesus, and you can walk back with Jesus, who in his, break, in his breaking became the way of wholeness for us. So let's come. When you're ready, come on up. On the night when Jesus was arrested, when he was eating with his disciples, those in whom he had poured out his life already, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. saying, take it, this is my body. You can go ahead and have the bread. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many.
Holy Communion is a very sacred moment where we encounter Jesus at the table. It's almost as if we are one of his disciples seated around the table and he's pouring out his life for us. It's a wonderful thing that we do together, but let's also let it be a practice that shapes how we live each day. That when you get those feelings of guilt or when those sufferings are encroaching in upon you, bring them to Jesus. He can give you forgiveness and he can bear your sufferings with you. You can receive the strength of Jesus to continue on. Amen.